0: My sons and I often listen to uh, a podcast about marketing and about advertising. It's just something that I've always been uh, fascinated by. So on our way to, uh, to hockey practice or uh, driving to school or activities, we turn on this podcast every now and again. And the podcast was about uh, church signs. Uh, it, it wasn't a Christian podcast, uh, but it was, it was all about church signs. And uh, uh, one of them uh, described Adam and Eve in the garden and said that Adam and Eve were the first people on planet Earth that didn't read the terms and conditions for an Apple product. <laughs> I, thought that was pretty, I thought that was pretty clever. It also said that, that another sign said Adam and Eve got their hands on some forbidden fruit and they've been in a jam ever since. <laughs> uh, like, I... I wish we could just kind of be light about sin. Uh, it's good to laugh in church. Uh, church, uh, ultimately, in the end, is a, is a place where we can get comfort. We live in a cursed world. Uh, we we live in We live in a battle between a a, a new regenerated heart that loves Jesus for those who are following him versus our sinful flesh versus the desires that are inside of us versus the enemy versus the world. We want to rush to to comfort. But I love how uh, C.S. Lewis put this idea of, should sermons be comforting? Uh, Should church be a, a comforting Atmosphere, he says, of course, I quite agree that the Christian religion is, in the long run, a thing of unspeakable comfort, but it does not begin in comfort. It begins in the dismay I've been describing, and it is no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without first going through that dismay. In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get By looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with. And in the end, despair. And so we don't want despair in the end for anyone here. Our church exists is because we don't want to spare in the end for, for any human being created in the image of God on this vast planet. That's why we're committed to making disciples of all nations. But we don't want there to be that despair. But in order for us to ensure that we don't end in despair, there has to be a crisis. There has to be a moment where we do feel dismayed, where we come to to grips with the truth about sin and what it does to us and our relationship with God and our relationship with one another and our relationship with creation. So the last time that we were in the book of Genesis together, we saw Adam and Eve in paradise and they could eat from any of the trees of the garden that they wanted and Satan slithered into the garden. And, and temptation came when they, when, they, when, they, when they started to doubt God's goodness. Why is he holding back on us? And then Satan just flat out denied God's word, denied the reality of judgment that they would die if they ate from the fruit. And then, and then we saw that Eve desired to become wise. She coveted that when we desire God's throne, as, as Jenna just prayed, our heart's prayer should be that God would be on the throne. Not, not, not something else, and especially not ourselves. So Adam and Eve ate of the fruit in the midst of paradise. And the title for today's message is Paradise Lost. And uh, today we're going to see how God responds to sin. How he reacts when his children sin against him. The, the, the message is going to come out of sort of in three parts. God's really going to take the lead here. He's briefly going to have an interview with Adam and Eve. He's going to ask them some questions. And then he's going to lay down some curses. And then he's going to spell out uh, the consequences. But look with me at, at verse 8. It says, Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Notice that, that Moses here uses the term the Lord God. L-O-R-D, all capitals, and God. Notice that when, that when the serpent was tempting Eve, he just talks about God in general. Elohim, which is just a broad term for a divine being. He skips the personal aspect of who God is. It's the Lord God who formed Adam with his hands. Out of clay, it was the Lord God, the personal God, who breathed into his nostrils. It was the Lord God who gave the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree. It was the Lord God who who created the woman out of Adam's rib. It's the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. This personal God, He has a name. Satan slithers in. So let's just talk about God as a vague kind of concept, shall we? But then we're reintroduced to this God who was a personal God, who created Adam and Eve to be in a personal relationship with them. And almost as though it's too late, it's like the balloon that's floating away. We we get this this picture in verse 8 of what it was like in paradise, what they actually lost, this description of the Lord God, the personal God. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In the wind, in the spirit. He was walking in the spirit. This is what it was like in paradise. What, What made Eden paradise was not the trees as beautiful as they were. Was not the harmony between the man and the woman who were naked and unashamed. It was that God was there. That they had An unhindered, uninterrupted access to the creator and the source of all beauty and joy. But look at how they respond. It says that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees. By the end of this chapter, Adam and Eve are going to be evicted from Eden. They're not going to be allowed back in. But we've got to understand that being removed from the presence of God was at this point, it's actually mutual. Before they were evicted, they tried to evade. They, they themselves did not want to be in the presence of God. Paradise had been lost. And then the omniscient and omnipresent God, he was already there with them in the in the trees where they were hiding. He already fully knew where they were, asked the first of four questions, and he doesn't ask any of these questions for his benefit. He asked them for their benefit. Here's, here's the first one. He says, where are you? So if you're taking notes today, oh, uh, I'm just going to start this This first section is just under the heading of questions. God loves to ask questions. And again, God doesn't ask questions to gain information. Uh, He asks questions to help those that he's speaking with. Jesus asked all kinds of uh, questions as well, not because he needed the information, but to help those he was speaking with. So God says, where are you? And then Adam says in verse 10, I was afraid, and I was naked, and I hid myself. This is, this is the first thing that tends to happen when we, when we sin. We want to hide our sin. We don't sin and then come into the room and say, I would like to make an announcement. We don't let people know ahead of time that we plan to sin. We don't talk about it. No, we keep it to ourselves. We internalize it. We come up with our own rationalizations. We don't want to verbalize it because someone else is going to say, no, you shouldn't do that. We try to hide our sin. We hide it before we do it. We hide it while we're doing it, and we hide it afterwards. We hide our sin. And remember, the original audience Maybe not the first generation that would have read the book of Genesis, but the second generation, Joshua's generation. Remember after after the invasion of Jericho and the walls came down? Remember that guy Achan? And then the next battle, even though Israel had this miraculous battle against Jericho, they went to fight this other smaller city and they couldn't win and they couldn't figure it out. And it was because Achan, again, he didn't tell anyone about it. But he saw some of the material wealth and he thought, we can't let all of this go to waste as an act of God's judgment. i got to take some of it for myself. He saw and he took, just like Adam and Eve saw and they took, and he hid. And so the, the second generation of readers would have been very familiar with this idea of hiding our sin. And so God says, and Adam, where, where are you? And then Adam says, oh, yeah, uh, right, um, I was afraid and uh and naked so that's why that's why i'm here is that why adam was there Oh, yeah, rather than talking about my sin, let me just tell you about my feelings, okay? I I just want to say that I was feeling afraid, okay? So I just want to talk a little bit about about how I'm feeling and my emotions. I don't want to talk about my actions or take responsibility for what I did. Let me just explain contextually how I was emotionally processing the fact that you were walking through the garden. Do you see? Does this sound at all familiar to how we work? And then I just want to tell you a little bit about my about my circumstances. The reason why I was hiding was that like I was, I was, just let me tell you what I was wearing. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't wearing anything, God. And so I just thought that it would be best for me to, to hide. Not, God, remember the tree you told me not to eat from? I ate from it. That's the straightforward way to come clean and to say, this is what happened. This is what I did. Don't tell me about your emotions, God. Say, Don't tell me about what you're wearing. All this other talk, just get right at it. And Adam just will not get right at it like we so often do. When we sin, we've got to remember that we're all like Adam. We all have a tendency to want to hide our sin. Further generations reading Genesis would have thought about David. And David sin with Bathsheba. And he thought, oh, I, can, I can manage this. If I just get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba, then it would all be covered up. And that didn't work. And if I could just have, get, get Uriah killed off. And, and if I quickly marry Bathsheba, then the, I could cover it up. I, I could hide it enter Nathan, and Nathan tells this little parable, and then what does he do? He asks a question. What should be done? What should be done to the man who took the, 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 the lamb of his, of his servant? He asks a question. But we have such a tendency to hide our sin, don't we? So then God asks it another question. Oh, you're naked. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked, and then God gets right at the right at the thing. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? It's a simple question. It's a yes or no question, isn't it? It's a yes or no. And the same Adam who's like, "Well, I was afraid, and I was uh, naked. Uh, did you eat from the tree? Yes or no?" Well, the woman. So not only does he try to hide his sin, but as the light is starting to shine and you're beginning to see a silhouette of the shape of his sin, he immediately tries to say, look, I know it's there, but it's not my fault. It's the woman's fault. So he tries to, he throws Eve under the bus. Eve was deceived. Adam was not, we're told in the New Testament. It was Adam's sin that, that, notice that God comes looking for Adam here, not for Eve. He says, where are you in the singular? He's looking for Adam. He tries to blame Eve. Again, we try to to blame other people for our sin. The original audiences would have remembered when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and Aaron was left in charge. He's, you know, deputy, and he's... He's trying to manage things, and the people are like, quickly, after Moses was gone, they're like, we, we, need, we, need, we need something, we need you to do something. And Aaron comes up with the idea of making a golden calf, and he organizes everyone. It says that he crafted it with a, with a, with a, with a carving tool to, to make the golden calf. Moses comes down, starts asking questions. What does Aaron say? Well, first he says, well, I threw in the gold and out came this calf, like almost like it happened accidentally. And then when, when Moses keeps asking questions, he says, well, you know what? You know the people. The people really pushed me towards it. And then Aaron says, well, and Moses, you really took a long time to come back down. So, yeah, let's let's not, like, I know what happened, but let's let's... Let's paint the whole picture here, okay? There was the people. There was, the, there, was, there was you and your delay. Where what Aaron needed to do in that moment was just to take full responsibility. What we need to do when we sin, yeah, we're surrounded by sinners. We know. We live in a cursed world. We know. Life is hard. We know. But we still need to own our part. And when we own our part, we can't be talking about all these other things. We can't be blaming society, or we, we can't be blaming our, our phones, or we can't be blaming a stress, or we can't be blaming other people, or we can't be blaming our upbringing, or we can't be blaming uh, whatever else there is about our personality type, or a certain diagnosis that we have, or blaming this, or blaming that. All of those things are part of the puzzle. I'm not saying none of those things are, are not minor or in some ways major factors that determine the way in which we are tempted and the way in which we struggle. But we have to make sure that we own the part we need to own. Was it sin or was it not? Did you do it or did you not do it? It was a yes or no question. And Adam said, the woman. And notice also, he says, the woman that you gave me. He's not just blaming Eve here. Who's he blaming? God. Like that's, that's really serious. So then God turns to the woman, verse 13, and says, what's this that you've done? And again, the the woman says that the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she has the more sort of spirit, like I was under spiritual attack. The devil made me do it. No talk about it. Yeah, I, I, God, I coveted what belonged to you and to you alone. I desired to possess the wisdom and the knowledge that you have on your own so that I could be autonomous in my own life. I, was, I wanted to be on the throne. That's what needed to be said. So, loved ones, we got to own our sin we we need we need to be individuals who take individual responsibility for our actions for our thoughts for our words no one makes you angry you choose to be no no one can make you angry yeah, the devil is a tempter, but he did not pull the fruit off the tree and shove it in Eve's mouth. She took it. The, the Satan is, the, the, the Satan, the devil, Satan, the serpent, is limited in what he can do. Remember, it, it, read the book of Job. He had to keep asking permission. He's limited in what he can do to you, he can't force you. To sin. Do not. We got to take personal responsibility. So that, that's, that's our challenge to us as individuals. But I also want to challenge us as a community. I, I want to challenge the families, I want to challenge the spouses, and I want to challenge the parents, and I want to challenge the children. Is your family relationship such that people feel like in order to survive and in order to keep the peace, they have to hide in the trees? Or is your marriage and is your parenting and is your family and your friendships set up in such a way that that you reflect the goodness and the mercy of God. And that people feel comfortable. I can talk to my father about anything that I've done. I can talk to my mom. She may not like it. She may not approve of it. But I know that she will still love me. And she will listen to me. Do we have families that are like that? Where the, where the husband can tell the wife anything and not be afraid. Where the wife can tell the husband Anything and not be afraid. Where the children can tell the parents, where the parents can tell the children. We have to continually work and remind the people that we love that nothing is out of bounds. That you you, you can bring it forward. And yes, it's sin. And, and yeah, for sure, we're not going to approve of it or celebrate it. We're going, to look at, we're going to look at it for all that it is and all of its ugliness, but we're still going to love you through it, and we're not going to let you stay in it. We're going to get you the help that we need. Are we, are, are we those kinds of families? And our small groups, our, our ministries, are our ministries, our small groups, our teams that serve together, that study the Word of God together, that do life together in discipleship? Are we creating an environment where people can feel free to come out from behind the fig leaves, to come out from hiding from the trees, and confessing their sin? Loved ones, we we need to be that kind of a church. And we need to have families like that, spouses like that, parents like that, children like that. God, we, we need to be a family that's comfortable with asking and answering questions about how we're, how we're doing. Adam and Eve could have answered far differently. God was asking straightforward questions. He was getting all these rabbit trail answers. So, do people feel comfortable bringing these these kinds of things forward? So, God starts with questions and then he begins to lay down the curses. First, he speaks to the serpent, he doesn't ask the serpent any questions. Uh, we, we know from the rest of the biblical narrative, like, God's already dealt with, with Satan. He's already cast him down from heaven. He's already dealt with this rebel. There, there's no, there's nothing more that needs to be said. But, but to, the, to the serpent, he says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days Of your life. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So he curses uh, the serpent. We don't know what a serpent looked like or sounded like uh, before this point, but we know what they look like and sound like now. They no longer talk. And they are on their belly in the dust, and it's normal for the offspring of Eve to hate snakes. (laughs) I have a couple of friends that like, you know, Blair Watson used to go to this church and he works for Reptilia, he's always, he's always trying to bring snakes into the Hope Kids room and, hey, let me show God's creation, I'm like, get those out of here, it's why do you like snakes, that's something twisted. More, more about the relationship between the serpent and the offspring of Eve uh, in just a minute. Then he speaks to the woman. He says to her, I will surely multiply your pain. In childbearing, in pain, you shall bring forth children. Can somebody testify? I, I can't. <laughs> it says that your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That word, uh, desire, and uh, in chapter four, verse seven, is used to describe sin wanting to overtake Cain, wanting to control Cain. And what what we see here is is the beautiful complementary relationship between man and woman is is, is now distorted. That rather than the woman as the, as the helper who is equal in dignity and worth and value but plays a different role from the, from the husband, the, 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 the woman is now going to try to control her husband. And, and the husband, rather than trying to love and serve and sacrifice for his beautiful wife who, who is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, will now harshly dominate and Rule over her. We have centuries of evidence of of how wrong this has gone. How God's design and intention has been so distorted and destroyed. The notes in the ESV study Bible helpfully uh, summarize this truth. It says the leadership role of the husband and the complementary relationship between husband and wife that were ordained by God before the fall have now been deeply damaged and distorted by sin. The ongoing result of Adam and Eve's original sin of rebellion against God will have disastrous consequences for their relationship. Eve will have the sinful desire to oppose Adam and assert leadership over him, reversing God's plan for Adam's leadership in marriage. But Adam will also abandon his God-given pre-fall role of leading, guarding, and caring for his wife, replacing this with his own sinful, distorted desire to rule over Eve. This is one of the most tragic results Of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. It's an ongoing damaging conflict between husband and wife and marriage. Driven by the sinful behavior of both in rebellion against their respective God-given roles and responsibilities in marriage. Not only is our relationship with God broken. But our relationship with one another is broken as well, that, that intimate, naked, and unashamed, vulnerable, perfect harmony that God had created for man and woman is now distorted. Then he says to Adam in verse 17, he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember, Adam sounds just like the Hebrew word Adamah for ground, for dirt, dust. Adam was taken from the ground. That's why he was called uh, Adam. And now the curse is placed on the ground, the ground that Adam came from. Remember, Adam was put in the garden to work it and to keep it. Work is not part of the curse. But the thorns and the thistles that grow are a part of the curse. Work is now hard Work is, 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 now there's this battle between Adam and the soil. Adam Adam came from the soil. He was like one with the soil. Everything worked perfectly in the garden. But now as Adam tries to cultivate the soil, he's in conflict with the soil. There's thorns and there's thistles that are trying to stop him from growing this spring. And spring will come. Hallelujah. Please, Lord. This spring, dandelions will have no trouble growing, but your grass will. And all everything, whether you're planting vegetables or whether you're you're planting flowers, why does it always seem that the thing that you want to plant just struggles and needs all of this attention? Meanwhile, all of these other weeds with thorns and thistles are growing all over the place part of the curse work is cursed control alt delete is part of the curse when your your car doesn't start you know in minus 30 that's part of the curse when 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 things break down what work is hard because of the curse but we're called, we're, we're called to endure. It, this is a scary picture here. It's this idea that like Adam is like fighting it out with the ground. And then the ground wins. The ground swallows him up in the end. He says, you're going to return to the dust. The dust wins. You're going to die, Adam. You came from dust. You weren't created to return to the dust. But because of your sin, because of the curse, you're going to... You're going to return to the ground. Notice how the curses that are laid out in Genesis 3 coincide with the blessings that God gives in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 28. Remember, be fruitful and multiply. That was the first part of the blessing. How do they be fruitful and multiply? Well, a man and a woman have to come together. But now there's going to be conflict She's going to try to rule over him. He's going to try to... T- so, so they're not going to be multiplying as much as they could because they're wasting time fighting. And there's the pain and childbearing. So the fulfilling the blessing, fulfilling the mandate of creation is now difficult, particularly for the woman as it relates to multiplying. And then they're supposed to fill the earth and subdue it, subdue the earth. But the earth is going to fight back with thorns. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. They both, the woman has pain in childbearing. Adam has pain in trying to subdue the earth. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. These are the curses. Notice though, what and who gets cursed. Do you you see it in, in, in scripture? Curse appears when he's talking to the serpent. The serpent is cursed. When he's talking to Adam, he doesn't say Adam is cursed, he says the ground is cursed. And he doesn't mention the curse when he talks to the woman. That in the grace of God, Adam and Eve, they're living among the curse, but they themselves are not cursed. But nonetheless, there are consequences for their actions. So we have the the questions and the curses, and then thirdly, the consequences. Verse 20, it says, The man called his wife, wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So we, again, we see the mercy of God here. Eve is going to go on living. She's going to become the mother of all living. They're, they're, the mercy of God is that they, they didn't die immediately. There was still hope for them, and that God mercifully covers their shame. Those fig leaves weren't going to last, so God made them more permanent clothing. Then look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So again, what we talked about before, Satan's lies were actually half-truths, right? They did become like God in a sense. They they did get access to the knowledge of, of good and evil. But God here in his mercy is concerned about the other tree. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center, and the, but right beside it was the tree of life. And God says, they can't eat from the tree of life. They could have eaten from it before they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But now that they're in the state that they are, they can't eat the tree of life and live forever in this state. Now that they've fallen from where they were in creation. No, God says, no, they're going to have to become new creations. Before they eat from the tree of life. Death here is like a mercy. For Adam and Eve to go on and to keep living under sin It would be awful. To go on forever without any hope of change or transformation. To live forever outside of the garden. So God says they can't eat from the tree of the knowledge. So they can't eat from the tree of of life and that was a mercy so he sent them out verse 24 it says that he drove out the man to the east of the garden of eden and he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life so adam was put in the garden in chapter 2 verse 15 to work it and to keep it he was supposed to guard the garden he was supposed to keep liars like the serpent out of the garden. But now, but now there's a cherubim that's guarding. And now Adam and Eve have been driven out. They started by evading God and now they're, now they're being evicted by God because of their sin. These are the consequences of sin. Let me list them out for you. The curses and the consequences, pain and childbearing, conflict and marriage, hardship and work, the thorns, return to dust, which is death, exiled from Eden, and they can't eat from the tree of life. Now, the original audience, again, is reading this. And remember before that as they're hearing the story of Genesis and reading the story of Genesis, they're wandering through the wilderness. They're carrying all their own personal belongings, but they're also carrying all this other stuff right this big water basin and this huge lamp stand the menorah and and all of these curtains and poles they're and as they're reading about the garden of eden they're like well that lampstand has branches and flowers it's like a tree and it's at the center of the tabernacle like the tree of life was at the center of the garden of eden and the water basin that's like the river that flowed out of eden and you had all of these all of these uh, parallels God's law was there in the garden. We have the Ark of the Covenant containing of the Ten Commandments. Everything's made out of gold. There's even onyx stone in Eden and onyx stone on the priest's breastplate. And now they're, they're struck even more that, huh, the, the door to the tabernacle, the place where there were no posts, was on the east side. Adam and Eve left the garden and went to the east. And the tabernacle was always set up facing east, like, come on back this way. And all those curtains that they were carrying around with them and setting up in the tabernacle, in, in the curtain was woven. Look at Exodus uh, chapter 26, verse 1 on the screen here. Uh, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully woven into them. What's all outside the tabernacle saying, you, you can't get in here. Cherubim. With a door to the east. And the only way to get through there was with the sacrifice. These are the the questions that God asks, the curses that God pronounces, and the consequences that Adam and Eve and all of us have to live with east of Eden. But I, I want you to go back with me to a verse of 15 where the serpent is talking to Eve. He's, remember, the serpent gets cursed, Eve doesn't. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Even in that moment, something would have struck with Eve that, that God was a merciful God. She knew she deserved to die. She hadn't had children yet. And yet she's being told, while God is laying down the curse on the serpent, she's being told that she's going to bear offspring, that she's at least going to live long enough for, for one child. To be born. And you, you read about it in chapter 4. As soon as Cain is born, she's like, oh, thank God, I made it this far. I, I've, I've, got a, I've got a man with the help of the Lord. So there's this sense of hope that, yeah, we're not going to die right away. Adam lived for 930 years, as it turned out. Eve is called in verse 20, the mother of all living. There's this sense of hope because there's this talk of offspring. The Hebrew word there, offspring, and the word for seed, like that you put in the ground to grow plants, it's the same word. And just like in English, the word for seed and the word for offspring can be used as a a plural and as a singular, right? You have, you know, seed, and it could be a big, uh, you know, grass seed. It's a big bag full of seed. Or you could have a seed, like a single seed. In the same way, I could I could say that Ezra is my offspring; he's my firstborn as a a single. But I could talk about all four of my sons—Ezra, Abel, Bo, and Jet. I I could talk about them as my offspring. It's the plural or singular. See what I'm saying? Hebrew—it's the same way. So it says that I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. In the plural. The other really encouraging thing for Eve as she's hearing this is this, not only is she going to go on living, but even though she followed the words of the serpent, she's told she's not on the serpent's team because there's going to be enmity. So even though she, she should be on the serpent's team, God is saying, no, 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 no. You wanted to be a free agent and, and sign over there. No, that's not going to happen. I'm keeping you, Eve. I'm keeping you, Adam. You are going to be on my team. We, you are going to be opposed to the serpent, even though you chose to fall. Just these tiny little hints of hope. And again, for the original audience, they're listening and they're like, well, we're, we're part of the offspring of Eve. And we were just in, in opposition going toe-to-toe with Pharaoh who had a snake on his headdress, and he was sort of like a descendant of the serpent, an offspring of the serpent, and we're offsprings of, of Eve, and there was enmity between us. They would think about Saul fighting guys like Nahash, who was a king, at, his name meant serpent. David fought against Goliath. David refused to put armor on, but Goliath was wearing armor, and armor in, in Hebrew is the same word for scales, like on a snake. And so David, not wearing scales like a snake, goes up to this giant, dressed as a snake, wearing scales, and what does he do? Chops his head off. Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise your head, and you shall, so yeah, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So these, the, the original readers are are putting it together, saying, hey, there have been moments where we've been sort of up against the snake people or the snake person, and God has come through. There's been that sort of enmity in the plural, that we the offspring. But then it gets really zeroed in at the end of verse 15. Then it becomes singular. It says, he shall bruise your head. Not just the people of Israel in general and Pharaoh and Egypt. No, one specific person will crush the head of the root of that serpent, Satan, the devil. And that was through Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate offspring of the woman. And how is that going to happen? Well, look at verse 21. How did they end up with the garments? The, the, the original readers would have understood that the way to have their shame covered for their sin, an animal had to die. And, and all throughout their history, Animals are dying at the covenant with, with, with Noah. Animals die. The covenant with Abraham. Animals die. The covenant that God makes at Mount Sinai. There's sacrifices. Animals die whenever they go to the tabernacle. Animals die. There's death to cover the shame. And so at the cross of Jesus Christ, he is the ultimate sacrifice. And he is the offspring of the woman. And yeah, for sure, you know, if if you're in a fight with someone and you walk out of the fight with like a sprained ankle, but he walks out with serious head damage, you won the fight, right? Bruised heel, crushed head, you win. So yeah, for sure, Jesus died. It was like his heel being bruised, but for the son of God, that was just like a minor injury, because he resurrected gloriously three days later, and when he did, he crushed the head of the serpent. And loved ones, uh, everything else, all of the, uh, all of the others, uh, let's skip this slide and go to the very next one, the very next one after that. Pain and childbearing, Jesus was born of a woman, Galatians chapter 4. Conflict and marriage, Jesus set the tone. For this is what a husband should look like. Serve and sacrifice like he died on the cross for his wife. And the wife should submit the way the church submits to Christ. Hardship and work, the thorns. What did Jesus have on his head when he went to the cross? A crown of thorns. Returning to the dust, Jesus was buried in a tomb. Exiled from Eden, Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And Adam and Eve couldn't eat from the tree of of life. But in Revelation chapter 22, everyone who's there is free to eat from that tree. And that we have this hope, Kevin, we can go back to Romans 16. Sorry, I changed the order on you there. And we have this hope that because we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, when we face sin, when we face temptation, and Satan not only tempts us to sin, he also condemns us after we do sin. That Romans 16:20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet as you place your faith in Jesus. Why? Not because you're gonna work harder or you deserve it or anything like that. No, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you because he died as your substitute to cover your shame, to crush the head of the ultimate enemy and to set us free from our sin. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is how we fight temptation when we remember who Jesus is and what he has done let's bow our heads and pray together our heavenly father we come to you in the name of jesus the name that is above every name and god i pray that you would help us even right now lord just in your perfect timing god To have a a message about sin and its consequences and the reality of the curse, and then to be able to share in communion and to remember the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. To remember, Lord God, how Adam and Eve took and they ate, and that Jesus told his disciples, Take and eat. It was in taking and eating that that led to the sin and the curse and our separation from you. And it is in taking and eating where we remember the mercy and the grace that is available to us. So God, we pray for your help and for your grace in this moment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.